wishing and hoping and thinking and praying, planning and dreaming each night of his child that won't get you into his arms. So if you're looking to find love, if you can share, all you gotta do is hold him and kiss him and love him and show him that you Hello and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast where we dive deep into pop culture from the 80s and 90s, which happens to be When We Were Young, and perhaps you were too, but if you're older than us, no judgment, in fact, it makes us feel pretty good about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And if you're younger than us, go fuck yourselves. Yeah. In every episode, we look back at a pop culture artifact from the past, including movies, music, TV, and anything else you might remember from When We Were Young. Oh, how many more times are you going to bring up the podcast title? At least five. Repetition, Becky. Yeah, so from beloved classics to forgotten gems to stories that just don't stand the test of time, we see what entertainment from the 80s and 90s still holds up today. I'm Chris, your podcast host, most likely to hijack a bread van and drive wildly through the streets of Chicago while screaming into a football-sized cell phone about his thwarted plot for romantic (laughs) sabotage to his gay best friend. (laughs) I am Seth Pearson, the co-host most likely to be the pus that infects the mucus that cruds up the fungus that feeds on the pond scum. That's just like you. Yep. I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to star in a romantic comedy and still end up with a gay guy. (laughs) So true. I think we covered that topic a little bit in our last episode. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So today, the When We Were Young podcast would like to cordially invite you to a joyous union between a talented man and a very pretty woman. They would be PJ Hogan. Okay, Gene Shalit. This is the wedding episode, so we're allowed to be fucking cheesy. (laughs) The wedding special. It's the The wedding. When we were young, wedding special. It's the wedding episode. (laughs) When we were nuptials. Cordially invites you. (laughs) So we will be discussing the films of Australian director PJ Hogan, one which stars the pretty woman Julia Roberts, and the other stars... Tony Collette, who doesn't have a <laughs> descriptive movie title about her looks. The Sixth Sense? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, so got a couple of weddings for you. Muriel's and my best friends. Because uh, apparently this dude likes his weddings. <laughs> we have a new review to read. <gasps> because someone else likes us. Besides me? <laughs> no, this is Becky again. No, no. it is not. Uh, this review is called So Many Great Memories. Mm. It is a five-star review, and it fucking better be. It is from Sister Mary Mojo. (laughs) Sister Mary Mojo. Peace be unto you, sister. Is that the right She sounds like a happening lady. (laughs) She is. Her review reads, I assume it's a woman, because her name is Sister Mary Mojo. (laughs) And also, I know who it is. That's very (laughs) heteronormative of you. (laughs) But also, you know who it is. (laughs) So the review is, Listening to your podcast is a great trip down memory lane for me. I'm decades older than your target audience, but love how the episodes remind me of the great and not-so-great music, movies, etc. that I enjoyed along with my kids. P.S. I also happen to have inside info that one of these podcasters had a pet rat named Buffy. (laughs) Seth. (laughs) No, I had guinea pigs, but not a Buffy. Named Mulder and Scully. (laughs) No, I didn't name them. That'd be an awesome name for. They were that would have been awesome, but the guinea pigs bit me and were assholes to me. 
What were their names? I don't remember. Oh my god, you're the I, worst. Well, I didn't own them. I was watching them for a friend. She had to like go out of town for a month, and I, I watched them for a month, so I had guinea pigs. That's the closest to a rat. That's the only rodent in my life. Mm. We we actually did have rats. I wasn't planning to go into the rats, <laughs> but uh, one of the, the the first one that I had was named after a song on the Friends soundtrack album. <laughs> Was the rat named I'll Be There For You? It was not. It was <laughs> Shoebox. <laughs> I don't oh, even remember no. who sings that song now. But uh, yeah, and like <laughs> they used to crawl on us and like people would get weirded out because a lot of people don't like rats. With good reason. Well, but domestic, <laughs> they were cute. domestic rats are really cute and they can be very sociable and yeah. sweet. And they're clean. Yeah. They're not like yeah. some giant sewer rats. Which I became familiar with when I lived in New York. <laughs> it was a whole different story. So we often <laughs> like to open the episode by talking about rats. <laughs> and then a general question that has something lightly to do with our topic. Today it is, what was your view on marriage when you were a kid and, and weddings? Did you see yourself getting married? Did you have an age that you thought you'd be married by? Like in this movie, they both are looking to the age 28 that they think they'll get married. So I don't know. Did you think you would be married by 28 or? Honestly, I thought that I would be married at some point, but I thought I would have to settle. <laughs> or I thought I'd be married to a gay guy. Like I had a lot of relationships. <laughs> and a lot of dreams. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a pretty negative outlook on my own future. Yeah. I'm currently married to a straight man who is wonderful. <laughs> so we think. <laughs> so says it's you. It's just a long con. <laughs> <laughs> a very, very long con. My husband does have a man crush on uh, Justin Timberlake, but that's fine. That's understandable. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't think that there are many men who do not have a man right, crush. Right, exactly. On and and also, has he wooed him? Has he yet wooed him, Becky? <laughs> Not yet. See? Then I think it's meet. a perfectly harmless man. Yeah, I think you're safe. <laughs> I, what we're saying. I don't know. You may not be safe from Justin Timberlake. <laughs> so yeah, my husband is wonderful and I did not settle. Like, he is a great person, a great husband. But it's weird because I never thought I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to find someone. But I really did think that I would have to settle. Like, I guess that's me thinking I wouldn't find somebody that I would eventually have a connection with. And it would all work out in the end because I've had connections with people and then they fizzle out for whatever reason. So I guess I did have like a negative view. And I'm happy to say that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a real bummer. If you were like, yeah, I, I'm really settling with my agreement. I thought I would be married by 28. I really Really, really just packed it in and gave up. <laughs> no, I didn't really have any positive relationship role models growing up because my parents mm. have not been together since I was 10. A lot of my friends' parents divorced. I'm sure there maybe were, but I can't think of one working relationship in my youth that was a role model for marriage. Um, mm. And I'm talking about people that, like, their parents stayed together but cl so clearly shouldn't have. Yeah. Um, mm. And I think that's sad. And I don't really have a lot today. Like, I have my own friends who just got married, and they all seem to be happy more or less. But like, give them 20 years. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking I know a few divorced people that are my age. But, yeah. like, mo mostly I do know happy married couples. Um, but, yeah, I I think maybe that was something missing in my youth like a, a positive married couple that were happy <laughs> what about weddings like did you 
a lot of young girls kind of fetishize weddings. Did you have any of that or? No, I didn't actually. I more so imagined my Oscar dress. (laughs) (laughs) That's so perfect. Yeah, I knew exactly what I wanted to wear as an Oscar dress. I wanted it to be made of flowers. I wanted it to be a big poofy ball gown. And when you got Uh, married in that dress, it was wonderful. (laughs) I did get married in a big poofy ball gown dress, which is, I guess, what I was picturing that I would go to the Oscars with. So I guess we know where my my priorities are. Go to the Oscars in your wedding dress. (laughs) Nope, nope. Time to go with the second choice, swan dress. Yeah, I never fetishized my wedding because I knew, if I had fantasies about a wedding with like, if I had a crush on a guy and I would fantasize about our wedding, it changed with with each guy. So I recognized like... (laughs) Some of them were at a share concert. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I knew that whoever I ended up with, like the wedding would have to be something that we both like and share. It wasn't just like, this is my wedding. This is how it's going to go. This is what I want. Like it really would depend on, you know, who I was marrying. So I never really had like this set standard. Yeah. You never struck me as a bridezilla. (laughs) No. As a Oscar winning filmmaker. (laughs) You never struck me as that either. <laughs> Golden Globe, maybe. Oh, thanks. People's choice. People's choice. A Grammy for a weird Becky Bank Vic. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, if you ever play Silent Becky in a movie, then <laughs> maybe. Seth? I mean, I think like anyone else raised in the patriarchal society of America, I was indoctrinated basically from any movie or show you would see growing up. There'd be stories about marriage, like in yeah. one form or another. Even like shows about fucking animals, they would get m- married and like I, fall in love. I and, don't like, know any shows about fucking animals, actually. <laughs> well, I watched nature documentaries, Chris, and I would make up stories about their marriage, <laughs> and those were the first weddings that I ever fantasized about. Um, I never really had fantasies of marriage for myself. I would definitely had like fantasies and dreams about falling and being in love, and did that many many times growing up all of which were frustrated like got frustrated and or were impossible for whatever number of reasons but like becky i didn't really have too many examples of super functional super healthy relationships but there were some in my life enough to like at least let me know that that existed and that was possible but i could even tell at a very young age that that was a lot of work and i did a lot of like emotional work in the broken relationships that i was a part of and grew up among and had to to kind of like survive because i had to figure out the emotional states of people who are not very communicative about them. So it's like my understanding of love was, I think, a lot more complex than it's supposed to be at a young age. So I probably would have like fantasized more or gotten more from the fantasy of like wedded bliss or whatever. But I also think there's a large part of that where it's just like knowing not that I was gay, but that I was not the same as everyone else. That also really changes the degree to which seeing straight coupledom doesn't really hit you, Mm -hmm. or at least it didn't hit me as much. Yeah, kind of similar, I guess, to you guys is I sort of vaguely thought that I would get married someday, but it never felt like it was coming anytime soon. I was always very, like Becky, focused on my Oscar. (laughs) And (laughs) which I'm I'm sure I'm going to win very soon. Any day now. You can wear my poofy ball gown dress. Probably next week. Um, Yeah, and I knew that I wanted to have a career. And so I kind of figured when I was a teenager that I would do the Michael Douglas and like get myself a Catherine Zeta-Jones. It was something that seemed like 
nice, but I wanted to be like super rich and have many Oscars uh, before <laughs> I got there. And so I guess I'm still waiting. <laughs> so it wasn't a priority. No, no, it always it always felt like something I would want to do at like 40 or later, most likely. And so I'm still on track for that. <laughs> Did you see 40 as like the downhill age? My, I predicted my death at 42, so I would only have like oh, really? a nice two. No. Oh well, well, but I but see, just when you mentioned that for whatever reason you thought like forty would be the age, I thought maybe that characterized kind of a once you've achieved your highest plateau of personal achievement, like that's the yeah the home stretch. It's looking more like seventy now, so I don't <laughs> well, know. Maybe you know we'll what amend they say, that plan. Seventy-eight is the new fifty-eight. Do you have any friends that if you're not together by the time you're seventy, <laughs> you'll be together? Oh Jesus! <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna want anyone. Well, <laughs> share catheter bags then <laughs> we'll share creamed corn and blood pressure pills if i was friends with julia roberts in this movie i would totally i'd be like fuck yeah let's get married let's get married now i wait yeah. if you were friends with julia roberts in this movie she'd ruin your life to prove her love i'm fine with i mean people do that all the time yeah <laughs> wait that doesn't work as much so so before we get into my best friend's wedding, let's talk about Muriel's wedding. Muriel's wedding was released on September 29th, 1994 in Australia and March 10th, 1995 in the U.S., distributed by Miramax. It was written and directed by P.J. Hogan. Can you confirm that he is not Hulk Hogan's brother? <laughs> I can't confirm that. Well, case closed. <laughs> and now let's hear a warm welcome to Act 5 in the High Viscous Island Star Search. It's Ever! A little bit of a personal history with him. It was based off his sister and his father's relationship, where his sister stole a lot of money and then fled for a year and was not heard from for a year. So well that part of Muriel's wedding is actually based on a real story. The budget was $9 million. The box office was $15 million in the U.S. and $56 million worldwide. So it was a little, uh, a little indie sleeper. that could. Yeah, yeah, a little sleeper hit. A little Miss Sunshine of its time. <laughs> Yeah, um, so it's actually one of the most beloved Australian films um, of modern yeah. cinema, along with some other movies called Chopper. Um, <laughs> Crocodile which, Dundee. Uh, Eric Bana is uh, the lead of Chopper. And what? The Cat and the Castle, which is about like, um, in Australia, they're called Bogans, but the what we would call them here is rednecks. It's about like a redneck family in the Australian, you know, suburban countryside. And don't forget Australia starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman. <laughs> Everyone loved that one. Yeah, that was that was definitely a hit. Um, but uh, come on, we can't look past Crocodile Dundee. Oh, also Priscilla, Queen of the Starring Desert. Starring Paul Hogan. Uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of great Australian movies. I just mean as far as like a legacy, mm. people look at Muriel's Wedding and they're really, they're still fond of it. I have some connection to Australia because I lived there for a little bit. Um, Brag about it. Why don't you? <laughs> uh, I visited Continent there. Dropper. I've visited there quite a few times, and I lived there for half a year in 2005. And Muriel's wedding, I saw very soon after it. I think came out on video. I didn't see in the movie theaters, 
but um, I believe it was one of the movies running on pay-per-view when we had stolen pay-per-view in my house. <laughs> so uh, I think a lot of them, what I've realized of this podcast is I think the reason that I've seen so many adult-oriented movies when I was very young was because my mom just let me watch TV and she didn't look at what I was watching and I was watching a lot of stolen pay-per-view <laughs> parental guidance was suggested but not required yeah between like 92 and like 96 like I was just watching like movies on repeat whatever was playing so I think Muriel's Wedding was one of those movies um so that's why I saw it because I don't understand how else I would have seen this movie I had no like what was it 95 I was 12 like I didn't know anything about Australian culture or you know I didn't really care about weddings or anything I just was on TV so I watched it and it became one of my most favorite movies ever like it's it's really near and dear to my heart did you go movie. to Blockbuster I did but that was pretty young Blockbuster for me uh was kind of one of those places where you would see like one or two international titles mm -hmm. so it was kind of one of those ways where I was exposed to those two I think Blockbuster for me was mostly I knew what I wanted or had heard about but I don't know totally. how I would have heard about this movie at age 12. I went to movies and more, so I don't relate. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Is that like... Yeah, it was just our local video oh, store. Okay. It was the alternative to Blockbuster. So Muriel's Wedding stars Tony Collette, Rachel Griffiths from Six Feet Under fame, uh, Bill Hunter, who is also in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. It's Tony Collette's first leading role in a film. Um, her first film was actually an ensemble called Spotswood, and it was known in the U.S. as The Efficiency Expert, and it starred Anthony Hopkins and Russell Crowe. Oh. So her first movie actually had some, you know, well-known people in it. Not well enough known to <laughs> have actually heard of that movie. But. Yeah. Um, so she was 21 years old when she filmed Muriel's Wedding. Wow. She was 21? Mm -hmm. Wow. And she gained 40 pounds for the role in seven weeks. Whoa. After Muriel's Wedding, I saw her in a movie, and I was like, wow, she really, like, shaped up and you know, got thin, but she was already thin. She just gained mm. a lot of weight for the role. Um, she was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Comedy. Um, there is currently a stage adaptation of Muriel's Wedding in the works. Of That's course there going is. to premiere in Sydney this year. There is year. a stage adaptation of literally, even Romy and Michelle <laughs> really? is coming to the stage. There's a Chasing wow. Amy opera. <laughs> 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 um, so the <laughs> the critical reception to uh, Muriel's wedding it, it it veered on the side of being critically praised. Um, for example, Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars. He said the film walks a careful line between satire and misery. Janet Maslin from the New York Times also gave it three and a half stars. She called the movie a gleeful, gaudy tribute to one ungainly misfit and her determination. Lots of G's in there. She was Maslin all over that one. <laughs> uh, whereas o Owen Gleiberman from EW gave it a C minus. He said the trouble with the movie is that there's nothing to Muriel but her false dreams. We never quite glimpse the women they're hiding. So he didn't like it. Um, personally, I love this movie. I loved it all through my childhood. I thought it was just so charming. And then I recently watched it in preparation for this podcast. And I hadn't watched it in a while. And I think it was one of those things, again, where I had it on VHS and I just never bought it on DVD. And then I no longer have a tape player. So I just didn't watch it for a while. And I just... I watched it with some fresh eyes, and I still love every moment of it. I love the ABBA music. I'm really into ABBA as well, and I think it's because of this movie. I think the acting is really great. It's really quirky. I see a lot of myself in, in Muriel. Um, How so? <laughs> what a saucy way to ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. Um, so. I always thought... It, 
I always saw myself as an outcast, like Muriel, you know, friends with people that were supposedly more popular than I was, cooler than I was. And I was like, you know, the black sheep friend uh, that wasn't really like worth hanging out with, but just kind of like tagged along, um, you know, overweight, you know, just do- didn't find my place in the world or my f- my f- my true friends. Um and I think that just really resonated with me. And and she's very flawed. It's not like she's just, you know, overweight and maybe a little unattractive and everything else about her is great that people can't see. Like, she has a lot of flaws as well. She's terrible, you might even say. <laughs> You're terrible, Muriel. Who wants to get married to me? <laughs> Muriel. I really think this movie is nuanced. And even though so much of it is over the top, I think that it really touches on true things that people feel and insecurities. And she learns that a wedding isn't everything and she has to love herself and she has to treat her friends who treat her well. She has to treat them with respect. And it's just, I think it's just a great movie that really holds up. And, you know, most of it, you know, still holds true today, even though it was filmed like uh, 20 plus years ago. Yeah, I had seen part of the movie, I think, before, but watching it in preparation for this podcast was the first time that I saw it and was really paying that much attention. And I don't think it's a perfect movie. I think it kind of has a strange tone. It's very melancholy, actually, which I wasn't expecting because I know a lot of people kind of cherish it as a comedy, but a lot of the movie is not funny um, and not trying to be funny. A lot of it's super depressing, actually. Her relationship with her mom in particular is super sad like yeah and just that character um yeah i i really enjoyed it's it's an offbeat movie and i really enjoyed the voice that it had and i especially enjoyed looking at it in comparison to my best friend's wedding a movie that i was a lot more familiar with um i kind of agree a little bit about like the critique of her character that you just don't quite get to know her and i i don't necessarily mind that she's an interesting character but I all like I, I have a hard time knowing exactly what she's thinking when she hatches some of these plans and I feel like um the friendship with Rachel Griffiths kind of like comes in and out of the movie but isn't like it, it feels kind of like the movie doesn't quite settle on which story it wants to tell but these are all pretty minor criticisms because I I think overall the movie is Interesting and enjoyable. Very funny. Sometimes the um, seduction scene, I guess you could call (laughs) it. The scene where she goes on a date and they go back to her place that she shares uh, 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 an apartment with Rachel Griffiths. And Rachel Griffiths is having very, very, very loud, happy uh, sex with two men in the other room. And they are on a first date and they're like, would you like tea and biscuits? And you can hear like banging on the wall and screaming. Mm -hmm. It's hilarious. Yeah. And then the couch falls apart yeah they're on like a beanbag couch and then he like goes to like unzip her pants and he unzips the couch and there's (laughs) there's ball beads like everywhere and And she's she's like laughing she's like laughing and squeaking uh and like it's just so funny and then the naked guys run out and she's squeaking and laughing more and then rachel griffiths falls and turns out she has cancer so that's like a really good um example of this movie going from like really really funny to really like sad (laughs) Yeah, it has a really unusual tone, I think, in that way, in that it's very absurd at times, but also, like, harrowingly depressing. Yeah, I think it's a good example of Australian culture, that it's very it's very gaudy and over-the-top, 
Um, but there's like real heart there. I feel like it's just a very good example of Australian cinema. Yeah, and I enjoyed, I thought it was a really interesting, the kind of the main plot of the movie is that she gets engaged to a perfect guy who's basically using her for a green card, right? Yeah, I mean, they're using each other because she just really wants to be married. And once she's married, then she'll feel like I'm accepted. Like Mm. that's her goal is, her main goal is I want to feel loved. And she thinks just because she puts on the wedding dress and gets to be beautiful and, you know, uh, adored in front of people that she'll finally be okay with herself. And she learns that's not the case. Yeah, she gets what she always wanted, she thinks, and it, in classic movie style, doesn't actually fulfill her. But I I found it really interesting that this guy is, like, this really good-looking South African guy that's, like, ridiculous when you think about him, like, with someone like Muriel. And what I liked about it is that they actually do end up kind of falling for each other in some kind of a way. And it doesn't last, but... I was actually really surprised that the movie went there and and kind of explored a more complicated relationship. Like, you could imagine a version of this being kind of thin and not taking the characters that seriously. And the fact that this movie really does consider everyone's point of view and takes the time to have these kind of strange and sad moments. I really appreciated it. So I think Muriel's Wedding was a really great breakout movie for PJ Hogan, and it definitely got Hollywood's attention um, because they tapped him to direct My Best Friend's Wedding. Yes, they did. This was the 90s, and Julia Roberts was pretty much the biggest female movie star, I think, probably in terms of box office as well as just recognition. I mean, I, I think she still is kind of the most iconic modern movie star, I don't know if I can think of anyone else who seems more like a movie star than Julia Roberts. Tom Hanks, maybe. Yeah, like. Oh, Tom. but like female. Yeah. I mean, you could make a case for like Meryl Streep. I feel mm-hmm. like it's kind of different, though. Cause... Yeah, she's more of an actress than a movie. I mean, she's obviously a star, but she disappears into roles, whereas Julia Roberts is more of the like playing Julia Roberts. Yeah. Suddenly, Michael realizes he doesn't want creme brulee. He wants something else. What does he want? Jello. Jello? Why does he want Jello? Because he's comfortable with Jello. Jello makes him comfortable. I realize compared to creme brulee, it's Jello, but maybe that's what he needs. I could be Jello. No. Creme brulee can never be Jello. You. Could never be Jello. Have to be Jello. You're never gonna be Jello. So my best friend's wedding was written by Ronald Bass, who did a lot of big landmark films of the 80s and 90s, including Rain Man, The Joy Luck Club, Dangerous Minds, Waiting to Exhale, Wow, Entrapment. Yeah, he was a, pretty much a superstar. Wow. He also wrote two other Julia Roberts joints, Sleeping with Enemy and Stepmom. I had no idea who had written this movie. He wasn't a name that was familiar to me, but I was very surprised that the person who wrote this was such a prolific writer. So the movie was released on June 20th, 1997. At the top of the charts was I'll Be Missing You, Puff Daddy. <laughs> two weeks I'll earlier, Mbop. Mbop. Shout out to our Now That's What I Call oh, Music Mbop. episode. This movie opened at number two behind Batman and Robin. It did open at number two. 
between this and Batman and Robin, I, yeah. I think we know what the worst movie is. <laughs> <laughs> also, mm-hmm. at the box office at this time were Con Air, Lost World, Speed 2, and Austin Powers, all of which hold up. <laughs> More or less? <laughs> or less. And less. I was trying to slip that one past you. <laughs> it also uh, was one week before Mike Tyson bit Evander Holyfield's ear. So. <laughs> Thank I, you for capturing the moment for I had us, to, Chris. <laughs> I had to throw some violence in there. And... The movie, on a $38 million budget, made $127 million in the U.S., worldwide almost $300 million. So it was a big, big hit. Big hit. Uh, it's the number 15 romantic comedy of all time still. So it was also nominated for one Oscar for Best Comedy Score back when, like, briefly the Oscars split their scores into comedy and drama until I think they realized yeah, that, that strange. very little good music made for comedies. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Whimsical strings. Oh, they won again? (laughs) I can't believe it. And the movie was remade in China last year. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yes. Um, And the reviews were pretty good, not stellar. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it three stars and says, One of the pleasures of Ronald Bass's screenplay is the way it subverts the usual comic formulas that would fuel a plot like this. It makes the Julia Roberts character sympathetic at first, but eventually her behavior shades into cruel meddling. And then there is the Washington Post review, which I have titled the meanest movie review of all time. <laughs> can't wait. Can't wait. <laughs> I, I have several quotes from it just because it's like... Can I read one of them? Yes, you may. Okay. Well, I'll read one because there's three paragraphs. That's perfect. (laughs) Stephen Hunter of the Washington Post says, Hmm, let me see if I get this straight. In My Best Friend's Wedding, Julia Roberts plays the smart one, and Dermot Mulroney, he's the hot one, and Cameron Diaz, she's the goofy one. Those casting blenders go a long way toward explaining why the film just doesn't work. Poor Roberts, pretty and perky as the day is long, hasn't a hoot in hell of bringing Julianne off. She's simply not actress enough. She doesn't have that suppleness that would enable her to sell the complexity of emotion, the jealousy, the irrationality, the meanness, and the intelligence. She never really seems smart enough to dream all this stuff up, and she never seems complicated enough to get away with it. A last note, terrible clothes. Uniformly, the cast is dressed as if by an idiot. What? Mulroney's crinkly little t-shirt peeks over his polyester sport shirts. Not even sports writers dress that badly. And poor Diaz is wrapped in a green bandage that makes her as wan as a denested baby wren. But it's Roberts who is the most betrayed. She is finally poured into a pair of black jeans that are set off by a skimpy, midriff-bearing shirt. It makes her seem quite unsubstantial above... Quite substantial below. Okay, spoiler. I've got problems with this movie, but that is not one of them. Yeah, it's I actually, I will tell you that I've been in a lot of weddings as bridesmaids, and I think she has the best bridesmaids dress I've ever seen. And this movie's from the 90s. Yeah, she looks gorgeous in that dress. (laughs) She looks gorgeous in that dress. Usually bridesmaids' dresses are pretty bad, and I have so many problems with this movie on so many levels. I (laughs) have several just very surface-level complaints about hair and other things, but this is (laughs) not— Just in general. These are not—it's weird. It's she weird because it's cute in that green dress. I don't. Oh, if, I believe she looks like a denested baby red. According to the Washington Post, I thought he was going to bring up the fact that her John Lennon glasses are stupid. Was uh, this review in the ornithology section of the I Washington Post? I think it Post? might have been. Yeah. Her John Lennon sunglasses were stupid, though. I have no problem with them. I like them. I like everything. 
So, uh, did you guys see this movie when it came out? And if so, what were your thoughts on it? I did. I remember going to the movie theater and seeing it with friends, and I remember liking it. Mm-hmm. It was. I remember being a huge hit. Yeah. And I remember especially liking the little lobster claws in the air during the sing along. Um, and I and I liked the beginning uh, dance like intro during the credits because yeah, I unusual. felt like I felt like those quirky moments stood out the most um, because they seemed atypical for that type of movie and they were very quirky and they were just the most surprising things about it. Were you aware at the time that it was the same director as Muriel's no. Wedding? Uh, well, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think that was a thing that I was even thinking about. I remember being in the movie theater and it was packed and everyone was laughing. So I very vividly remember that. I did not see this movie when it came out. A big surprise. (laughs) And I felt great about it. (laughs) And did you see Muriel's Wedding when you were a kid or no? No, I didn't see it. Okay, so I knew knew my best friend's wedding was a big hit. Uh, Growing up, I had a lot of friends who liked romantic comedies and loved that one. Um, I also knew a lot of people who loved Muriel's Wedding. Um, even when I was a kid, hmm. um, what year did that come out again? 94, 95 in, Amer- in America. Okay. So yeah, it would definitely, it was like a VHS. Like I said, I, I bet like maybe my cousin or someone rented it at Blockbuster. You know, it would be that kind of thing where they'd have one or two things on the shelf that were like the weird pick, the indie mm-hmm. corner. Um, and I didn't see Muriel's wedding until I was in college. Um, and I did not love it. I enjoyed it. Um, I loved Tony Collette in it and have loved her in everything I've ever seen her She's in. She's the best. She's the best. So I, I, of course, saw this movie when it came out. I think it was probably with my mom and my sister. I saw it in the theater. I kind of remember, like, Becky, like, it was packed house. People were loving it. There was just, like, a really good cheer around this movie. So this isn't a movie that I wasn't necessarily aware of as being a really important movie for me. I knew I liked it, but I had never really sat and thought about what the movie meant to me until we were preparing for this podcast. And I realized that this is probably the first really positive depiction of a gay character that I ever saw. You know, I had seen, like, Ricky on My So-Called Life, but he was abused and made fun of. and He had a sad life. Yeah, he had a very sad life. And that's kind of what the depiction of gay men was at the time. It, I don't think I saw Philadelphia at the time, but I was aware of it. You know, it was AIDS and there wasn't a lot of positive depictions of it. And homosexuality was not really even on my radar at this time. I didn't know anyone who was gay that I knew of. And I just had this vague sense that being gay was something bad because people called you a fag if they were like trying to insult you or if you called something gay it was bad back then and I said that all the time with my friends like it was just like the word that we used and it was funny at the time then there were like two or three people at my high school who ended up being gay and it was like in retrospect it was really obvious but it wasn't something that was in my mind like being gay always felt like something kind of exotic and tragic that was really distant for me A lot of gay material at this time actually went over my head. Like, in the Brady Bunch movie, like, I did not get the lesbian subplot with Marsha and Mm -hmm. her friend. Like, it took me a few times of watching (laughs) that movie for me to kind of get what that joke was even about. You know, I kind of, 
was like, why is she touching her leg? That's strange, but didn't just didn't really consider it that much. Even a couple years later in The Talented Mr. Ripley, like I didn't get that that was gay subtext. It just like I was vaguely aware of it, but it didn't like I kind of at the time needed something to beat me over the head with it to know that some like, oh, that's gay. And then along comes Rupert Everett to beat me over the head with it. <laughs> I didn't find this necessarily important at the time, but I just remember liking this character a lot. And I remember being aware that everyone else liked this character. Like Rupert Everett was the breakout of this movie. This is the movie that really introduced him to American audiences. And for a while, he was like kind of a big deal. And I just really liked that this is a funny character. He's like the life of the party. He's like women that I talked to were even, you know, they found him sexy in this movie, which is the first time that I'd ever really heard women like still being like kind of sexually into a gay man. Like that's something that's a lot more common now, Mm -hmm. but seeing this positive depiction was really important because at the time there was no, it gets better. Ellen had come out two months before this and it was this huge deal. Like she needed a magazine cover just to admit that she was gay. This is the first thing where like being gay just kind of felt like a normal part of this guy's life. And it wasn't necessarily his defining characteristic. And And it just gave me an example of a gay character that now I realize kind of was an important role model in a way to say like this guy can just be funny have a great life not have aids and (laughs) you know just not be abused yeah and he's like ostracized yeah and he's gay in the movie but no one really makes a big deal of it it's just like oh he's gay and then the plot moves on and it's just comedy and everything else about gay just felt like it was so focused on it and that it became such a big deal so i i liked that it was just it could just be a subplot and that was it So the plot of My Best Friend's Wedding is uh, Julia Roberts plays Julianne. Big stretch there. (laughs) Julianne Robertson. (laughs) She is a 27-year-old food critic. Uh, That's a hearty 27. Yeah. Well, she was actually only 29 when she shot this movie. So, I mean, it actually... They were all older. I have it right here. Julia Roberts was 30 when this was filmed? No, she she was 30 when it was... more like it. She was 29 when it was released. Oh, right. Well, I did some math, but, but maybe I'm a year she off. Was but still, she's supposed to be 27 turning 28 in mm-hmm. this movie. She was actually 29, 30. Dermot Mulroney, which is very hard to say, uh, was 34. Cameron Diaz was 25. So they were all older in real life than the characters they're supposed to play. But not like why. Like, we've seen a lot of other movies where characters are significantly older than they're supposed to be. I'll get into my complaint about ages later. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So Julianne made a pact with her best friend that she briefly dated back in college. His name is Michael, played by Dermot Mulroney. And they said that if they were not married by the time they were 28, they would marry each other. And so she is a kind of cynical, not really a relationship person. She's more, I guess, career-oriented. She's in New York, so she lives kind of a fast-paced life. She was on a book tour yeah, for a little bit. I forgot about that. And uh, then her best friend, Michael, calls her and tells her he's getting married. And suddenly she realizes that she might lose him. And so she goes to try and sabotage the relationship and meets his fiance Kimmy, who is a 20-year-old college student, played by Cameron Diaz. She's a rich girl. So you'd think she'd be, like, dumb and snobby, but she's actually 
quite nice and cheerful and it's very hard to dislike her. So Julia Roberts is kind of trying to sabotage her throughout the movie, but you're also kind of not sure if you want her to. She's pretty much the villain of the movie. Yes. I mean, I think that's what how it was marketed. It was mm-hmm. It was like, surprise, Julia Roberts is the bad guy. Yeah. And it was interesting at the time to have the antagonist be the star of the movie and be the main character. And be someone who is already known for being kind of like the rom-com. Yeah. A rom-com heroine and like pretty, pretty woman. And so they were flipping it on its head. And I think that's, that is interesting mm-hmm. just to see that. I won't be able to talk about this movie without giving this away. So I might <laughs> as well just say like, I really like this movie still. I think it's a really great romantic comedy. I'm interested in hearing what your guys' criticisms are because I believe that there are criticisms to be found. I don't necessarily see them, I think, because I just have so much goodwill for this movie and saw it so many times when I was a teenager. And when I was just watching it, it was just really fun to watch it again. And be and it, it, it felt very familiar to me. Like, I still remembered so much of it. It's one of my movies that I can put on and, like, it'll, you know, it'll put me in a good mood. I don't necessarily think too hard about it. I do have some things that I think it does really well. I think it's still one of the best romantic comedies I've ever seen. My general thought on this movie is I think it's really entertaining. Like, I enjoyed watching it, and I think there's some good performances and some good moments. You can stop there. (laughs) I have... (laughs) When Were You Young is a production of... (laughs) I enjoyed watching this movie. That's good. I still have fundamental issues with the characters and and some of the story. Uh I have, like, extreme problems. (laughs) I would love to hear about them. Just fundamental parts of this plot and story. Mm Mm-hmm. But I'll let Seth speak his mind before we get into the nitty gritty. <laughs> I mean, I really could go all day. So let's just start with a general overview. I think we're about to have some chasing Amy payback. In general, I hate every single character in this movie and every single turn of the plot. Even for a romantic comedy, it is entirely unbelievable. Julia Roberts' character is a life-ruining sociopath. Like, a real sociopath in the sense that she does not care how much damage she causes in order to get her way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have many specific problems (laughs) with this film as well. Can we start at the beginning of this movie? (laughs) A very good place to start. First of all, I think it's hilarious that the chef in the kitchen tells his line cook, I will kill your whole family if you don't get this right. I love that, too. (laughs) No, I love it in the what? What What way? Like, what? (laughs) I, I think that's funny. I will kill your whole family. Chris, Chris if you approves don't of family killing. Right. He grew up with this, Becky. He's used to it. All right. She is a 27, about to t- turn 28 year old, famous food critic. All right. I'll throw you a bone. Sure. She's she's a fa- world famous food critic with a book at that age. Whatever. Sure. She is eating it was the, the 90s. She is eating the food and telling the waiter how she's going to write it up as the moment she takes a bite. Isn't this supposed to be anonymous and undercover when you go do food reviews at a restaurant? No, not always. There are celebrity food critics who people will recognize when they walk into a restaurant. And you announce to them how you're going to write up their food no, you at wouldn't the table? Do- I mean, the movie is not <laughs> trying to be a drama about I'm food criticism. I'm just saying, criticism. like, right from the get-go, I'm like, huh? This was the first time I'd seen this movie. And in romantic comedies, it is incredibly common for most of the characters to not have any clearly marketable job skills or any apparent uh-huh. reason why they make the amount of money that they are 
obviously make to yeah. have the lifestyles that they hold. And then, particularly in the 90s, that was like absolutely. Friends that's a, and a totally Seinfeld. A trope. Absolutely. I totally grant that that's a trope of the genre. But even for that, I didn't believe that any of these people made money doing what they claimed to be doing. Julia Roberts, she doesn't really talk with any passion about food. She like has a food metaphor later in the movie. Like, a great jello. <laughs> where the, their names rhyme with the food she's comparing them to. Creme brulee, and she's Kimberly, and then it's Jello and Julie, Julianne. Oh, well, I didn't get the See? depth of that conversation. <laughs> I mean, you right guys, away. can you get some pliers? Because my eyes are now stuck to the back of my head, <laughs> and I want to unroll them no, so you can I can keep read them my there, notes. Actually. Okay, so let's but talk about the fact notes. that she says all these nice things about her best friend, but she's like, we've seen each other through everything, and yet he didn't tell her about the woman he's dating and marrying in four days. That's how close you are? They call that out in the movie. The tiniest bit where she's like, You've been busy. I've been on a book tour. My my answering machine is eating my messages. Well, but I'm he like, says that he got. That's part of the movie is that he's getting married to her so quickly and wondering. Like that's what allows her to potentially sabotage the marriage is that he starts thinking he doesn't really know her well enough. But as and I get that, but as somebody who's literally went through a wedding and wedding planning, do, people don't throw giant family weddings in less than a month of dating and planning. Do you know what I mean? Like, but maybe if you're like super rich, you can throw that all together like really just, quickly. It was so. Um, it was like they would elope if they were just like in love and like spontaneous. But the fact that it's like this giant wedding, and I feel like I am like nitpicking, but at the same time, like from the get go, I did not buy that they're this close and he didn't tell her about like it'd be one thing if that was the excuse but then later you realize i didn't want to tell you about her because of blah 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 like mm. if he, he used that as an excuse like you've been busy um but i was just like so i didn't believe their friendship from the get-go mm-hmm. yeah I mean, it's all, like, this is general in the sense that it spans the whole story, but I kind of don't understand them as friends. I don't understand what their chemistry is supposed to be. Yeah, I I do kind of identify that as, it's not something that ruins the movie for me by any means, but I, as a, a weakness, like, she calls him her best friend, but, it, like, George is obviously her best friend, like... <laughs> Oh, no, he's like, what does she say? He's he's like you, but straight. Yeah. You couldn't possibly be my best friend. You're a gay man. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, as, and touching on, like, I think it was, like, a good representation of a gay guy, but they didn't treat him very well in this movie because he seems like the backup plan. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, Chris. I appreciate that this was, like, um, a, at least a non-judgmental portrayal of a gay character that you saw early in your life. I don't think it's a good representation of gay men. He is fucking sexless. He is neutered. He is a eunuch who exists only for the pleasure of straight women. And he serves completely at the pleasure of Julia Roberts' character. He just flies in at her hotel. He literally flies. He, like, whatever, again, it's never clear what he does for a living other than be gay and fabulous. But I... I don't know. I I feel like I react very strongly to seeing characters whose only utility, gay characters whose only utility in a movie is flamboyance and kind of weird omniscient knowledge of how to save the day for a like for the female character. Like, and I feel like that is a thing in a lot of rom coms, and it is a thing that 
it's a it's one of the few ways that gay men were portrayed at the time. It's mm. absolutely a, a product of time. My judgment of it is very much a product of time. But I have a hard time not really viscerally reacting against it. And it's weird because I feel like Rupert Everett kind of became a thing. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that because bef- I'm not sure if I've seen him in other things, like in other movies Isn't since Isn't the Madonna then, but... movie where he was a gay guy in that mm-hmm. next best thing? Having a baby yes. with Madonna yeah. every gay yes, man's yes, dream. Yes. But I can't think of another movie he's in to be, po- to be Well, honest. and I know that he has, like, in his personal life, he has particular views about, like, the way that gays should be represented. And, like, he's kind of... I, I feel like he's kind of lost himself some work for that reason. I think that... You're right, Chris, that at the time, most gay people were seen in a really negative light. And the fact that people liked being around him, like nothing sad was tied to his character. I think all of that really does, um, you know, that was great at the time. I think just looking at it now, I can see his character and enjoy him. But I still feel like the movie itself kind of put him like below everyone else. Yeah, his his character was actually a lot smaller originally. And... Um, the movie originally ended with he was not at the wedding and she got a phone call from him. And then the I think it was a studio note. They made them change the ending. So John Corbett shows up in the ending and like it's like. Aiden? Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, of Sex in the City. Uh, shows up. And, and my big fat Greek wedding. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> another, another wedding. Wow. And um, and so it's like it, it's hinted that this is the guy for her, and test audiences hate him. Like that she just ending. meets a stranger at the wedding and yeah. is like, "Oh, now I'm with this guy." Yeah, what? as a lot of like any almost any romantic comedy that doesn't end with the two people actually getting together usually ends with a and here's someone you don't know at all who we just assume you'll live happily ever after with because this and is then the Julie Roberts the looked at the camera and went like <laughs> yeah. like uh, what's his bucket and um pretty in pink okay Christy Swanson <laughs> I wish Julia Roberts made that noise <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> that is not a good impression of Julia Roberts <laughs> it's an amazing impression Rupert Everett actually pushed to be in the movie more. I mean, I think a lot of actors would want to be in their movies more, but he actually kind of was instrumental. They realized that a lot of her behavior was unlikable, and so she needed to vent to someone and for someone to call out the fact that she's kind of an asshole in a lot of this. And so literally the function of the character, yeah, is to provide that service for her. That doesn't bother me because he's like the fourth main character in the movie, you know, and I, and I think he is the life of every scene that he's in. So I don't know. I mean, I just, I don't. I feel like he's an emotional support animal. You just feel like he's a prop that Julia Roberts character. No, not just a prop. Like, I feel like his only purpose is to do emotional work for damaged, broken characters who, and like expects nothing for it. Nothing really. Like she's just like, she's, I guess, nice to him. Indulges his, they seem, they seem like they have fun together. They seem like they have fun. Sure, sure. You're going to humiliate me, aren't you? Only if I can. Okay, just one thing. Stay away from me. Against God's plan? No! Oh, no! This is wonderful! It's wonderful! Oh, no.
But it's just, it's funny to me that she's like, oh, you know, I've been hanging out with, what's his name in the movie? George. George. I've been hanging out with George a lot, pretty much my best friend nowadays. I'm like, then maybe you should treat him like your best friend. He's the one that's with you. And, right. And she keeps... Yeah. Like, I I don't know if this is a character flaw or the movie, but, like, he's there and he's helping and she's like, well, I lost my real best friend. I guess I'll have you in the end. Like, it just feels a little insulting to that character hmm. that he's just kind of, like, second place. Again, she's a sociopath. <laughs> but I think that's the point, is that she's supposed to be a selfish character who doesn't see what she's doing until the end. Well, okay, let's talk about what she does in this movie. Okay. She, okay, let's name the bad things she does. <laughs> she uh, lies about being engaged. And so she has her gay, true best friend, I guess, uh, pretend to be straight. Mm-hmm. Um, she uh, pretends to be Kimmy's father and emails jo- uh Michael's boss. Michael's boss to fire him so that she wasn't really going to send it, but it got sent. But she still was going to pretend that this was a thing so mm-hmm. that Michael would be mad at Kimmy. Yeah. Because she would, in that scenario, want him to uh, leave his sports job to go work at her father's company. Mm-hmm. So she's willing to break up their marriage with lies. Yes. And and ruin Dermot Moroney's character's father's career. Because it was like destroy, it would destroy his business. Yeah. So, she, so she basically sabotages his job in order to get what she wants. She makes her sing karaoke. When oh she's yeah, afraid she embarrasses Kimmy, knowing that Kimmy can't sing. There's little things too, but I think those are the main. Like the main here, thing is the email. Here's something that I thought. Okay, so I think she is kind of a sociopath or psychopath. She's calling out. I got to break up this wedding. And yeah. I don't know if that's because it's a studio movie and we have to clearly say, but I thought it would, would have been more interesting if she was in denial and she's like, got to be there for my best friend. Other friend is like, you're clearly in love with him. No, no, no. And she's in denial and she ends up sabotage, sabotaging, but she doesn't like mean to. It's kind of like yes. she has makes small decisions to sabotage and that spirals. And then she realizes, oh my God, I've been sabotaging because I'm in love with my best friend versus I'm going to go to my best friend's wedding and break it up and he's going to be mine. And systematically ruin a presumably loving relationship of my very best friend in life. That's it's what like, I love about it. Is it's like, again, that is awful. And well, but like it's, I feel like the only reason it's like that is because it's, because that's the high concept pitch. And, like, yeah. that's the high-concept, super-corporate Hollywood version of that story. And it's fucking sociopathic. Like, I feel like if I'd seen this as a kid, I probably would would like it. Mm-hmm. Would still like it, maybe. Yeah. Because Julie Roberts is her normal, charming self. Rupert Everett is super-fucking-charming. Everyone's charming. Everyone movie. is charming as hell. Dermot Maroney is kind oh, of a you, fox in you this know movie. What, though? You know what, though? <laughs> the scene where... Kimmy, through Julian's suggestion that she suggests that he quit his job and go to her, fa- her father's company, he takes it, like, oh, yeah. really mean oh, yeah. and angry. That's like, another character note ahead, sudden, is that Dermot Moroni's character on- will only accept a woman who will totally throw away her life for him. And that was weird, too. Yeah, and it was so weird. I felt like they were, like, in an abusive relationship. They barely know each other. And the second, like, I get that they made a plan and and she seems to you know bringing it back up saying hey what if you did this instead but 
But the way that he reacts so quickly was so angry and mean. And then she was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's my fault. It's my fault. And no matter what happens, she keeps being like, tell him it was my fault. Tell him it's my fault. That I'm just like, oh, my God, grow a backbone. Yeah. Are you okay? Like, I don't think this is a good relationship. Yeah. You should not she's be like, getting married. She's, like, too submissive, giving up her agency yeah. to him. Like, too to make much. Him ha- just keep him happy. Yeah. Like, it. They, they should not be getting married after a month of dating, like, at all. Yeah, again, like, I, I find all of these people pretty stupid at best and it seriously threw me off watching this movie because julia roberts character is so methodical and looks for literally any opportunity to undercut their relationship kimmy's happiness Mm -hmm. there's a version of that movie that i think would be really interesting and where the consequences would be believable but in this one the consequences the way that it turns around and she's allowed to in any way help resolve the situation is just so completely unbelievable to me that it's almost like it's kind of a fantasy movie yeah of like a really <laughs> it's a romantic comedy no but it's That's... like a fantasy movie of a n- nightmare person totally like winning the day and being being a hero like being allowed yeah. to be a hero <laughs> i mean i agree with that take on it i just really like it <laughs> it's just it's just weird because like i have never really found myself having real moral problems with a romantic comedy <laughs> yeah. but like i had real personal opposition that's why i like movie. the but, movie is because it's more complicated usually uh, you watch a romantic comedy and you're like cool i'm on board this girl likes this guy and then they get together and there's nothing to think about or feel and i like that this movie lets an anti-heroine be at the center of a romantic comedy, someone that you do expect to end up with the guy because she's the movie star on the poster and that's what you're used to. And then at the end, she ends up alone, punished, sort of. It's a very heightened reality, of course, and none of this is how this would ever go in real life. And that's just like a contract that you make with romantic comedies. When you go into them, you say like, this is going to be a bit of a fantasy. Yeah, but see, in that fantasy, evil is usually punished and the people who are good usually prevail who the hell do you think you are you came here pretending to be my friend and i made you my maid of honor who asked you to do that you knew me what eight minutes michael trusted you so i trusted you you wanted to keep me close you didn't trust me for a second i was right well of course you were right but that's not my fault you kissed him at my parents' house! Oh. On my wedding day! Tramp. Shut up! Now, I love this man, and there is no way that I'm gonna give him up to some two-faced, big-haired, food critic! Yeah, and that's why I like this. I find it so much more interesting that she is a villain and she learns a lesson. And I don't think that in real life they would forgive her as easily as they do in this movie. That is definitely a fantasy. But the movie is about her learning what it really means to love someone. What it means to love someone is wanting what's best for them, even when it's not best for you. And she has to learn that lesson and she has to let him go. And in the end, she ends up alone 
she does pay a price. I think the ending would have been really bad if it had gone with the John Corbett thing and she had just gotten thrown this other guy. But the fact that she ends up alone, I was talking earlier about like how Rupert Everett was important to me, but also I think this character, Julianne, was also really important to me. And to see someone that could end a movie like this being alone and being like pretty okay with that was also kind of formative for me. I really find that interesting. I feel like this movie is just so broad that there just isn't a lot of subtlety or, you know, yeah, some... it's like... Like, okay, so I really like the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I don't know if you've ever seen yes, it. Yes, I have. But this reminds me of a similar character that they do all these crazy things in the name of love and mm-hmm. to get a guy. And, like, the first season is about her knowing that her her crush has a girlfriend and kind of trying to, like, get a wedge between them. And I don't know if it's because it's a TV show that there's more time to explore. Yeah. Um, but in this movie, this 90-minute movie, it just felt like it's so broad that I only get the broadest of strokes of, we're best friends, because I say we're best friends. Remember that one time we did something? Guess we're best friends, because I'm saying we are, even though I don't really see their friendship. And then we're getting married because we love each other. But I didn't really see them in love, um, him and uh, Kimmy. So... All, all I saw was like we love each other, and then him getting like angry and her feeling like and, like an and him being wife. like you can't have your own life as yeah. my wife. Like and it, it's that's why I just like I didn't get the feeling that they're best friends. I didn't get the feeling that they're really in love. I didn't really get a lot of those feelings that would have taken me to a place of feeling empathetic or just getting in the mindset of this movie. Like it was just so broad. And so quick moving, like you're, I mean, it was very quick. Like we're on to the next thing immediately. To me, it's like a Michael Bay (laughs) rom-com. Like in the sense where everything Mm. is like the big, loud strokes of it. You don't spend too much time on any one character moment or any beat or letting emotional things play out. Like to the fullest extent. I know now. It's. I think there's a lot of emotional moments in the movie, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't disagree. It's a very broad movie. I, I just like it. And they don't. Like, it was the 90s, and it, a studio, like, comedy, like, this is just kind of what you got in most... Yeah, but that doesn't mean that comedies. I like it. No, it doesn't, <laughs> but I mean... Yeah, and, and I really and I really don't think it... I, I mean, I don't think it holds up now. I think it just... It plays so dated for a lot of reasons, not just, like, fashion reasons and soundtrack reasons, but... <laughs> oh, by the way, your best... Your song with your best friend should not be the way you look tonight. <laughs> Yeah. For your best friend. I'm sorry, but like, Chris, like, our song is not going to be some romantic. (laughs) It's probably like Slave for You or something. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, But our, like, my song with my best friend isn't like the most romantic. Actually, our song is Snakes on a Plane. Me and Seth's song is not going to be, uh, like, you're only a woman to me, or, like, something like, it's she's not only a woman to me. It's or not like, a girl, not yet a woman. <laughs> Again, it's not, we're it's only picking like, Britney songs. some super romantic song with your best friend yeah, that no, you're going not. to, like, serenade her with. You look wonderful tonight. Well, they did date, though, so, I mean, I feel like maybe that was their song when they dated. Still, that's so, so inappropriate. <laughs> I want to highlight another musical moment of mm-hmm. this. Oh, um, there are many. In particular, one that stood out to me is I remember the song I Say a Little Prayer for You being like made popular again in the public eye around the time this movie came out. As a result of Yeah, as a result of There was of this a movie. dance remix. 
That's incredible. Uh, and there's also a scene in the movie where everyone at the... It's at the wedding, right? No, it's where at the, like, dress rehearsal. Oh, okay. So, like, at the dress rehearsal for the wedding, there's a scene where they all sing and dance along to the song. What do you want to say about it? It's it's a white Fantasia. Wait, what? It's just, like, it's... <laughs> it, it was. I think it was at that moment that it occurred to me that this takes place... In, in a version an of that reality. city where there are no non-white people. <laughs> what? Where did race come into the song? I don't understand. I, I don't know. I think it was just that it was so many old white people, like, all dancing in unison. I don't know. I don't know what that it was about That is what you're going to get when two white people get married, is you're going to get their whole family's <laughs> going to be white. I mean, yes, there could be more color in probably almost any 90s movie, but... Also true. I mean, I That's like... also true. The parts of the movie that work for me are that scene and the opening credits dance. And I think that was, he. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like that is what PJ Hogan brought to the movie that feels a lot like Muriel, like the quirkiness. I think there's a lot of little things, like the cut, the vengeful sluts played by Rachel Griffith and uh, Carrie Preston. And like at the end, isn't she like licking an ice statue? And she's like, okay, so I did know that one of my favorite moments was the sister whose tongue freezes to the dick on the ice sculpture (laughs) of David. Like that, you can definitely tell, feels like PJ Hogan. Yeah. I wish they had spent more time with their families, because that, again, could have been a chance to reveal more character and be funnier, you know? Nope, we gotta go to the plot. Plot, plot, plot. Yeah, PJ Hogan actually lied to the studio about the musical number. Like, he's like, oh, they just sing a couple of lines, and, like... They only had like a half day to shoot the scene, but he ended up stretching it out for an entire week because <laughs> he knew that the studio wouldn't probably like a big musical number because they would be uncomfortable with it. So he definitely, like, yeah, he was responsible for that. For yeah, sure. and it's super quirky, and it and those are the things that I didn't, I still think hold up really well. Mm-hmm. Like when I first saw them, and I was like, oh, that's different for a romantic comedy to have like this little dance number with three people that aren't even in the movie. Um, and then yeah. have that musical number that totally wouldn't exist in reality yeah. um, pop up with a little lobster claws waving in the air. Yeah, and I feel like that opening kind of sets you up for the heightened reality of the movie, just that it opens in this musical number that has nothing to do with anything in particular. But it just it's very much like the fetishization of weddings. Yeah. Like, that's what that is. And then you kind of cut to a character who is not really into that. They feel like the character is written to be more of a Janine Garofalo type. Yeah, I can see that. She's a New Yorker. She's supposed to be kind of off-putting. Garofalish. Yeah. (laughs) And Julia Roberts is definitely... I think she plays it well, and I really like the character, and I'm glad she's in this movie. I like her in this movie. I do think that the more authentic version of the movie would have had a different cast, and I kind of feel the same way about Dermot Mulroney, is that there might be something about him. You guys cited that you didn't buy the friendship, and you didn't buy their relationship as healthy, and the common link there is Dermot Mulroney, so I kind of wonder Mm -hmm. if a different actor might have been able to do better. I don't know. I really think the fault's in the writing. I didn't like how he played that. I mean, he could have played it in a different way where he was still kind of angry, but not like angry in a way that was like, oh my God, are you going to like hit her? 
Like, that's kind of how I felt. I knew he yeah. wouldn't because I've was, seen this movie, but, like... Yeah. No, like, but he was really... Like, oh, I forgot about the spontaneous yeah. wife-beating scene. Like, it was just a really toxic thing. Like, it's a bad move in a relationship to tell a partner who you're about to marry that they can't have their own life also, when you have your life together. He's 28 in this movie, and she's 20 and still in college. Yeah. So here are some other issues I have. The fact that why couldn't she... she Cameron Diaz was 25 when this... Why couldn't she be a grad student? And, like... Yeah. And be like, oh, I'm not finishing my doctorate or I'm not finishing my, you know, master's because I'm getting married. Like, why did she have to be so young? It made him more creepy that he's a 28 year old marrying somebody still enrolled in college. Like, uh, and yeah. also she's a, she's a junior in college and doesn't have any other friends <laughs> like to be her bridesmaids. Like, I get that she would want maybe Jules, Julian, to be, like, in the bridal party, mm-hmm. even though she missed the entire <laughs> engagement period <laughs> and has not, not met her once. Um, but, like, she doesn't have any other friends. <laughs> Fair, I guess. I mean, so, I think it, that that the age difference was less of a problem in the 90s just because people I don't got think married the younger. Age difference is, I don't find a real problem with that, 28 and 20. It's... It also bothered me that their pack was for 28 years old. <laughs> Yeah, that part's weird. It is. Like, um, when I was watching this, I, I was like, yeah, buy. that makes total sense. Like, those people are old. <laughs> I never and now it's kind of like, ooh, really? I, I mean, never bought Dermot Mulroney as being 28. That's ridiculous. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's also true. I mean, this movie for me is very much like a fantasy. Like, I don't take it that seriously. And I wish it was more fantastical. Like, if you're going to be in that world, it just, that's why those things bothered me about even just the ages. It, like, just really bothered me. I mean, yeah, I guess I was, like, I've, I'm just used to all this stuff. and For me, it just wasn't, like, funny enough for the broadness of the character work to, for me to be able to look past how broad the character work was. Yeah, it's not like a comedy that is f- funny. funny. <laughs> I mean, it's, you but it's not that, going, it's amusing. <laughs> like, the dialogue is witty, I think, and I'm, I like... I I enjoy every scene, but it's not a comedy that's, like, going for, like, laugh-out-loud moments. Like, there aren't really set pieces in it. And I like that it's just kind of about relationships and, like, characters. And even though you guys don't love these characters (laughs) or their relationships. They feel like stock characters from, like, a Shakespeare or, like, a comedy of errors. Like, they all just feel... (laughs) That is the first time I've thought of My Best Friend's Wedding They don't feel like real people. They feel like... Just stock characters. But I don't even think they're as, like, fleshed out as they would be in, like, a like an Oscar Wilde. Because this does seem like a farce, you it know? Feels like feels like it's a, a farce, very, definitely. But I feel like in those, they would dwell on the stakes of the, the risks in the relationship and stuff like that. The consequences would be more heavy-hitting while still being, like, fluffy and silly. You know, the girl would lose the guy or whatever it would be. I don't know. I There was one other thing that I wanted to point out, which is that there's clearly product placement from Apple. There are power books, like their, oh, their laptops oh, okay. all through the movie. And there is one, like, moment where Julia Roberts is um, talking to someone. I don't even remember who. Maybe it was Dermot Moroney about, like, oh, how great it is to type in the power books now. They literally, like, worked it into a line somewhere. I'd like to point out that Paul Giamatti plays the hotel, uh, hotel bellhop. 
I love that. Mo- that was I the think, other thing. I think that's a really great scene too. Is it's just like a random bellhop yeah, like coming by, smoking a cigarette with her, and she gets to kind of confess her sins to him. And I just think that's not something that every studio movie would do. Like you, I yeah. actually really liked. That was one of my favorite scenes. That yeah. was actually one of the scenes where her character felt believable and felt true to me without quite feeling like a potential serial killer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I have in my notes here, like an hour in, she becomes evil. So I am aware that she is not a good person. Like that email plot is pretty heinous and it doesn't really hold up that well once you know how email works. But I don't think that many people did in 1997. I like that a romantic comedy heroine is allowed to be unlikable. Women are so rarely allowed to be unlikable in mainstream movies that I just I like that this movie takes that risk and like really runs with it like this movie really could have hedged its bets and made her not that terrible like the karaoke thing is like not that big of a deal to do you know so she could have done just things like that and they could have written it off as it's not really her fault and instead it really is her fault and she really has to admit that she's being a a total bitch and a life ruiner and I like that it went with that choice instead of trying to soften it and make her super likable. I just don't think she's ever actually punished for it, because at the end of the day, she still has her support gay. She's alone. She's not alone. I, she's she not alone. She has her second place friend. She has a friend, yes, but she's not... She she's got her silver medal. She doesn't end up with a guy, per se. Like, she's no, got and I don't think eunuch. she should, but I also... I don't know what the perfect ending is for this movie, but yeah. I, don't, I don't... I do. I don't love the one that was cut. And I don't love this one either. On behalf like, of Rupert Everett's character, I don't like. I like yeah. this one because it makes the gay guy the hero of the movie, I think. is He's the one that, like, swoops in and saves the day. And, like, you don't see... And reminds Julia Roberts what a human being would do. Yeah. His character is written mostly to kind of be her conscience. He's the Jiminy Dicket. I have a problem that is not alone for this one movie. I will never understand in movies the part in a wedding movie where the bride and groom change into different clothes and they leave their own fucking wedding before the wedding is over. I believed that was a thing for a while before I actually went to weddings. That happens in um, Father of the Bride, right? It's like, that is not a thing. That happens in a lot of movies. And I had my own wedding and I stayed there till the goddamn last (laughs) second. I was going to go down with that ship. Do you think it was a thing like at this time and it just like went away because I feel like it no wouldn't come out maybe of in like the 1940s I don't know like people no, would go like, on their honeymoon it, that night it's, but like it's like how like objections were not really like a constant thing at every wedding but in movies they're not well I don't know how many weddings <laughs> you've been to but the I objected all of them <laughs> That's why you're not invited to any more weddings. <laughs> right? We specifically told you. But that was a thing that became a trope in rom-coms like that, you know? Oh, I the... know. It's not this movie's fault. I'm just saying it's yeah. perpetuating this lie that, like, the wedding keeps going. Like, they're dancing and drinking and the bride and groom are gone. Oh, yeah. Like, you planned this wedding in four days. I guess saying. they're always going to their honeymoon, right? Like, in the movies, like, they're always, like, Leaving, leaving on a plane for their honeymoon otherwise, from like, their wedding. Otherwise, they just go home and they'd be like, hmm, it's only 11.30. Why, why did we leave? <laughs> I guess we'll watch some SNL. Oh. We uh, put all those cans behind the car. Fucked up at least one of the tires. <laughs> Before we go on the honeymoon, we should probably get a new tire. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I agree with you guys. But don't. About <laughs> 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 nothing. I mean, I, I do think that everything you're saying, like, yeah, George is kind of a token gay that exists 
as the gay version of the magical Negro <laughs> to yeah. Yeah. comes in yeah. to solve all the heroine's problems. And I think that the friendship between Michael and Julianne has always felt not quite finessed enough for me to buy it. But in general, I just think it's really interesting that a studio movie like this kind of tricks you because like it's set up where he's marrying this young, rich, blonde girl and you're expecting that Julia Roberts is going to come in and we're not going to like that character and we're going to realize that she does belong with Michael. And the movie lets you think that that's the movie that you're watching for a while. And then slowly you watch her do more and more of these terrible things and you're kind of like, oh, I don't want her to tear them up. That would feel wrong to me. But you're still kind of watching a romantic comedy thinking, well, of course it has to end up with her. So you're actually like, you don't even want that happy ending that you're expected to want in every other romantic comedy. And then I remember seeing it at the time, like the ending was very surprising to me that she didn't end up with him just because I can't think of very many other movies that are about you not wanting the protagonist to get to achieve their goal. I think that's all great, but I feel like the execution may have been better if there was less studio involvement and the movie could have been more biting um, and edgier. And yeah. Yeah, like it, it could have gotten darker. I just feel like the way it is, it's just so broad that I have trouble with their relationships. Yeah, and I love the broad stroke concept of it as you're laying it out. You know, like, Mm -hmm. I love any movie, Hollywood or not, that kind of subverts genre conventions. Like Becky said, though, I just don't think the execution of that fulfills that promise. And the way that it just goes about doing it is too broad for any of it to kind of land as true. I mean, I don't love a ton of rom-coms, but, like, all the ones that I like, like, have some kind of kernel What's element of truth. I did like Pretty Woman. Do you I like don't when know Harry how much grittier and more realistic I, movie. Yeah, I know, right? I haven't seen When Harry Met Sally. Um, oh. Podcast. <laughs> our list is growing. <laughs> We've got the podcast scheduled out till 2025. So. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know if I've ever been a huge fan of rom coms. Mm hmm. And I'm generally not either, which is why I like this, because this is a really different kind of one. So I find it interesting that this movie, like Muriel's Wedding, centers on a somewhat deluded heroine who um, gets involved in a crazy lie about getting married. Like, that's the plot of Muriel's Wedding and this movie, although this is a smaller piece of this movie. But Muriel's Wedding is so much about the fantasy of weddings, and for Muriel, getting married is the ultimate form of acceptance. And in this movie, it's kind of the opposite, is that Julianne doesn't particularly think anything about weddings, and... I think these movies just make an interesting kind of companion piece to each other, even though they're very different in a lot of ways. I feel like Muriel does a lot of bad things too, but I like her more as a character. I think there's just more subtlety in Muriel's wedding that that because of the studio involvement couldn't be in My Best Friend's Wedding. Yeah. I mean, he didn't write My Best Friend's Wedding, but if PJ Hogan had just made this movie outside of the studio system like he did Muriel's Wedding, I just feel like there would have been a lot more subtlety to it and and more depth that I feel like is lacking. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see darker versions of this movie. Everyone would look quirkier. Yeah. It wouldn't be Julia Roberts. It would be somebody that looks like Jenny Garofalo or, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I was just picturing more everyday people. Yeah, and I I feel like, like we've been talking about, I feel like a version of this that would have been more independent would have grounded the plot more in the characters because I 
think kind of counter what you were saying, Chris, that in this movie, the characters only act in the way that the plot requires them to act in that given moment. And I think that's why it kind of shortchanges developing their relationships and kind of dramatizing their chemistry in the context of the story, rather than just telling us like, oh, you're my best friend, because we've been best friends for such a long time together. Even just it being an indie movie would have made that a different thing. Yes. It would have. <laughs> it would have. Um, I don't know. I like that this is the movie that it is. Obviously, I love this movie. And if it had been that movie, it wouldn't have made $300 million and been seen by all those people. And so I like that the a movie that big does take some of the risks that it did. And I mean, I, again, will say, like, I think this was a landmark movie for acceptance of gay people. It definitely paved the road for Will and Grace, which came out a year later. Oh, yeah. Uh, like a redhead and her gay best friend. And the creators of Will and Grace even called out like the success of this to get that show on the air. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. I think that it just doesn't hold up today for at least me and Seth. Watching it, I can't get past that stuff. I think it is insane that Seth thinks that chasing Amy <laughs> holds up better in terms of depictions of gay people than this movie, but I will set it aside. In the universe, at least gay people are able to get some. Um, the women. So what did PJ Hogan do after? So after this, it took him a while to make another movie, and it was 2003's Peter Pan. Oh. Oh, no. Which I, by all, I have not seen it, but apparently is actually a pretty good version. I heard version. it was pretty good, but Wait, I think it flopped. 2003's yeah, Peter Pan? Not- who was in that? Jeremy Sumter was mm-hmm. Peter Pan. I don't know who that is. I think... He was a twin. Heath, or not Heath Ledger. I think Hugh Jackman was in it. No, you're thinking of Pan. No, that's Pan. That's the newer one. That's this the one was that a has, 2003. Uh, okay. I remember right. when that came out. I remember because it was like this little blonde Twinkie kid. So he did shoot a movie in between My Best Friend's Wedding and Peter Pan that also starred Rupert Everett, but it's not a movie I'm familiar with. It's called Unconditional Love. And he has a few credits like that. So the big movies that he made was really only the Peter Pan and Confessions of a Shopaholic. He's made a few smaller movies. He made another one with Tony Collette that I think was an Australian movie as well. Mm. And um, he made a movie with Kate Winslet last year called The Dressmaker, which didn't even heard of it. get a lot of attention either. So, yeah, My Best Friend's Wedding was definitely the peak of his career so far um, in terms of mm-hmm. popularity. And which is too bad because I think he's a really talented yeah. guy. Like, he brings something special to... A studio movie, I think. I'm jello. Yeah, and I still think that this movie was entertaining to watch. Mm-hmm. So it's not, I, I'm complaining a lot, but it's not like, oh, I hate this movie. It's the worst movie I've ever seen. It was totally watchable. Yeah, and I, I mean, if you dive into it, you can <laughs> you can pick it apart for sure. I, I definitely see that. Um, so in 2015, it was announced that ABC was trying to make a TV version of the show. <laughs> which what? I assume is not actually happening because it's not out yet. Right, but, like, yeah. It's just pluralized friends and weddings. It's it was going to be about Julianne and George. So it's like, how is the best friend and the wedding are not in the show? How do you, <laughs> how do, you do that? Oh, it's stupid. Bill and Gracie. Yeah. <laughs> the new ABC comedy. <laughs> yeah, it sounded exactly like Will and Grace. I was just yeah. like, we already had that show. <laughs> And then uh, Dermot Mulroney said he wants to do a, like an actual sequel to this movie with the same characters where... My best friend's she, divorce? She comes back like 20 years later and tries to like get them divorced. And this is one 
like I love this movie. I do not want to see a sequel. I don't want to see a TV show. Like it should lie it as it is. How about a prequel of them actually being friends and <laughs> maybe it can be <laughs> just like Romy and Michelle in the beginning <laughs> with Catherine Heigl as in the Julia Roberts role. <laughs> My best friend's christening. <laughs> Well, that's all the time for Julia Roberts shenanigans we have on this episode of When We Were Young. On the next episode of the When We Were Young podcast... Our next episode centers on a film starring this unbeatable trio, a future Academy Award-winning actress, a rock legend, and his codpiece. Mostly his codpiece. <laughs> Tune in to find out what it is. It's Labyrinth. <laughs> it's Labyrinth, David you Bowie and Labyrinth. You guys ruin my thingy every time. <laughs> but people were kept in such suspense. There were so many big codpiece movies of the 80s. <laughs> right, the 80s was the decade of the codpiece. We're doing Labyrinth. Is that a good David Bowie? Nope. <laughs> labyrinth. It's not bad, but it could use some changes. Thank you, that's much better. <laughs> oh. God, please, please wrap this up. <laughs> The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed our adventures, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And please leave us five-star reviews there as it helps more people get a load of us. If you would like to follow the podcast, you can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash show. You can tweet at us on Twitter at show. You can also email us at www.show at gmail.com if you have suggestions for future episodes. I've been Seth. I'm Becky. I'm Jello. You're not Jello. You can never be Jello. You're- I can be Jello. I'm Creme Brulee. I'll say a little prayer for you. <laughs> I'm in love with you. Answer his prayer now, baby. Answer my prayer, baby. Answer his prayer. Say you love me too.